Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and welcome to Talking Teenagers. Today we're very lucky to be talking to Joe Swinney. Um, and Joe is an amazing lady and, and got an incredible website, joeswinney.com. Joe, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about you and your, your journey. I'm a communications professional in a charity called Arosha, which works for uh, conservation in 21 countries. I also am a parent of two daughters who are 11 and 13. I live in Bath with my husband, who's a vicar. And I write books, one of which was on depression. And and is depression something that you have suffered from at any stage in your life? I Yes, I have got a lot of personal experience with depression um, running from when I was about 13. Um, and I've come to accept it's probably going to be um, something that I deal with on and off throughout my life. Do you just tell us a bit of, of your experience, Joe, with depression first as a teenager? And the kind of that that journey that you went on through those teenage years, and then perhaps we could. You, I know you've written a book about depression. We could just talk about what you've learned and, and kind of tips for parents in terms of this. It's quite a, a motive um, topic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Sadly, really familiar for a lot of people. So when I was thirteen, I went to boarding school in England from my home in Portugal, and I had had a rough experience of school in Portugal, but a really happy and vibrant home life. Um, We lived in a field study centre, so lots of additional people and kind of a a social life to balance out the difficulties at school. When I arrived in England, I experienced some culture shock, but I was also put into an unfortunate dynamic in my house um, where there were three preformed groups of friends of three people each and I was the 10th person I experienced culture shock I experienced bullying and then something happened about I don't know maybe a month in I none of those things became the issue anymore the issue was something inside me and I hadn't got any language or framework for understanding that but with hindsight I went from a kind of regular Um, experience of negative feelings into something fairly unhealthy and toxic it felt a bit like something in my bloodstream that took over my perception of of my situation such that like I couldn't really see my way out I felt very alone very everything felt very dark around me I I struggled to stop crying I struggled with lack of energy and low self-esteem and um, I I thought quite a lot about dying although I wouldn't have um, taken any action on that Um, so that was I I guess my first experience of, of something that had tipped over into more of the clinical depression it sounds horrific but how would you sort of distinguish between that tipping point from just really low feelings or negative feelings into that kind of clinical depression, because that's such a grey area for a lot of people who have or have you know who haven't suffered from depression. You know, how how do you distinguish the two? I realise that's a, a difficult question. Well, it's not an exact science, and it would be so helpful if there was a blood test or kind of a 
typical skin rash pattern or something. Um, and when you would, if you went to your GP now and and that was one of the kind of things you were wondering, they would they would give you a questionnaire and with lots of questions on it and they would then there would be sort of a numerical score that would give them an idea but still that's relying on your own truthfulness and your own perception of yourself so it's not an exact science but broadly speaking there's about nine symptoms that if you experience them for three weeks or longer um you're you're going into this sort of area of mental ill health rather than just having a sequence of bad days and they they include things like disturbances to sleep, um, altered um, appetite, uh, low mood, tearfulness, feelings of of guilt, inability to concentrate. Uh, It's quite a wide range, but some of them are fairly kind of physical in their manifestation. Do you have to have all of those for it to be depression or is it a a, a sort of a cocktail of them? Yeah, so um, five or more out of the nine. Yeah, for three weeks or longer. And so, so at what stage, um, Joe, did did you begin to realise? You know, you you felt like there was something in your blood, and and you, and you weren't feeling good. But at what stage did you realise that you had kind of tipped over the edge into? You know, was it a case that you met a doctor and they told you about those nine things, and that you were able to say, "I've got a cocktail of them all." So this. That first episode was in the mid-90s and at that point I think there was a lot of stigma around mental health, a lot of um, ignorance. People weren't necessarily thinking that if you were a young teen that was even something that would come into the equation. So I wasn't until I was in my early 20s and a student and living with a housemate who was studying psychology and I wasn't, I, sh- I should say, I wasn't majorly depressed for that entire time. I would come in and out of it, but more more often than was really great <laughs> for me or anyone around me. And so she she came to that bit in the course about de- depression and she, she just came bursting into my room with the textbook open at the page and said, this is you, this is you. And um, at that point, we had a family friend who was a psychiatrist and I phoned her up and arranged to go and stay for the weekend. And it was kind of revelatory, really. I sat on her sofa and wailed and sobbed and talked. And she she didn't t- take me through that list particularly. She just asked me some pointed questions. And at the end, after about an hour or so, she said, so you've got pretty, pretty standard major depression with episodes of um, long episodes of low grade depression known as dysthemia and this is what you can do about it um, which you might think would be the sort of beginning of getting help but um, it took an awful lot longer than that for for me to accept the diagnosis and overcome my own inner barriers to to wanting to be the person to get treatment and by then I had a, a huge number of ramified self-care kind of strategies and felt like I could I could sort of do it perfectly fine on my own but just it took a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot of energy and it didn't know it so you had a kind of DIY mechanism of dealing with it but yeah I guess that's very effortful as well isn't it and I think I sort of accepted these um 
really major highs and lows as part of my life and part of my identity. I couldn't really picture being someone who lived without 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 that struggle going on. Yeah. Did, I mean, I was interested that you said that you, you, you weren't happy with the sort of diagnosis in a way, that you, you resisted it. And I just, I just wondered what your advice would be to people in that situation. And I think in our, my experience as a, a pastoral leader in a school is sometimes the, the child is willing to accept the diagnosis and the parent isn't. And sometimes the child's not willing to accept it and the parent is, you know. And, and, and just how would you kind of negotiate that kind of scenario? Well, I don't want to be disloyal to my parents, but in all truth, it was them that were very unhappy about that. And I, as a parent myself, I really understand that. I think you don't want to think your child is broken in some way, and it must have been very frightening to them to consider what what had led to that and whether they had been culpable and I didn't I don't hold them accountable I think that all the treatment I have done the talking therapy I've done none of it has been a search for who's to blame it's all about the present moment and how to live well within my limitations and grow grow healthier so but yes they 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 really resisted it they fought it actually and um I put it down as an idea for another three years is, was that context partly, do you think, in the sense you said it's the mid-90s, our attitudes and our understanding, more importantly, have changed a lot since then. There's a lot more kind of common knowledge about it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. We've got we've got a way to go still, but um, things were very different at that point. And What, what, what advice were you given um, by the, 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 the psychiatrist that you saw when you were sitting on the sofa? Oh, she said there's a range of medications and there's a range of talking therapies. I mean, that's that's the sort of basic toolkit. A lot more has been done now on things like exercise and nutrition and social networks. And I think even then she wouldn't have said go straight to medication, but it had become quite a long term thing for me. And I think in terms of at the neurological level, um, I was really serotonin depleted. Probably I just had been low for a really long time. So you get you get a drug that replaces the serotonin or enhances it. I guess is that has that how it works? Yeah. So I'm getting into um, an area I'm, I don't understand very well. But how it was explained to me is it's to do with the receptors between neurons, serotonin being one of them. And so yeah. One of the things I love about your book is how you're able to put sort of scientific knowledge into the, I mean, I'm scientifically deficient. <laughs> and um, So your ability to, to describe things like that so that I could understand that was really, really helpful. I, I found that really useful way of visualising it rather than just getting scientific jargon thrown at it. I'm also really interested, um, Joe, in your what, what was in your DIY package of what you were doing to kind of keep putting one foot in front of another. So I I had a journal on the go most of the time. I was quite disciplined about things like a practice of gratitude. I had a number of friends that I would keep them updated about the place I was in. And if things were particularly bad, they would they were amazing and would kick in and do things like come to my house and wake me up and make sure well, when I was a student that I got to my lectures and that kind of thing. Reading 
good good sleep rhythms yeah I guess from what I've read or spoken to people everybody has a slightly different you know and and I guess as a parent trying to help your child you know try things and see if they work but not to worry if they don't and that's true of drugs and it's true of or medication probably a better word but it's true of you know the different things that help different people don't they so for some people I know exercise is hugely important but I've met people for whom that's not such a big deal maybe fresh air is important so I guess maybe one of the messages for parents would be there isn't a set way of dealing with it you have to kind of it's individualized and there's some you know some broad ideas but to try to try different things and see what would, would best help them yeah and and as a parent I think it's a, a question of kind of faithful presence and not showing um your child your own fear around it simple long-term love and comfort and yeah I think you you will have your own feelings about about your child's depression but there are other places to get support for that and that's important that's a really important thing to do because it, it can be kind of contagious, I think. So look after your own well-being and then just accept that it's going to possibly be quite a long haul and the improvements some days will be followed by a really terrible day. I love that phase, faithful presence. I think it's a, it's a great way of describing sometimes what parenting is, isn't it? It's just being there and not you can't always fix it these are really complex issues and as you say it must be really kind of heartbreaking on one level as a parent but at the same time you've got to be there and stay there and stay faithful to that person through that I'm so aware too it's just very drain like a depressed person is a real drain on the energy in the rim and the kind of um it's it's boring it's it's cyclical the kind of the thoughts and the negativity can be from the outside just enraging you just I mean, even me, when knowing it from the inside, when I'm in a good place and I'm around someone who's depressed, it's just you kind of want you to sort of itching get them out of it, and it can't be done. <laughs> That's okay. Like, be honest about that. You're not you're not a horrible person for finding your depressed kid really hard work. Um, that's okay. It doesn't mean you don't love them. Yes, it's that it's that whole point for parents, isn't it? That it is a long race and. Um, you know, when these little episodes happen, that sometimes our job is just to keep on loving and accepting and not to see them as a sort of performing acrobat for us. But they are just, uh, you know, they're, they're a, a, an object of our love. And that's a really good point. I mean, looking at your website, Joe, and, and, and your books and your blogs and the, all the various things that you do, um, have you found that very helpful? And is that something you would encourage somebody who really has struggled or does struggle that they try and share and try and help others is that a route that you would encourage others in it's funny because when I wrote my book on depression it was a very costly thing to do for me and I did it out of a sense of um, the need to speak openly because it felt like there was a big blanket of silence covering the subject had moved from Canada where it was pretty much um, in the open back to the UK in the early 2000s and I yes I immediately felt the kind of weight of silence around it and I felt compelled to speak and I at that point felt very hopeful that I had been healed (laughs) so 
taking myself back into thinking about the dark times was really difficult for me. Um, and I did it because I wanted to help people, not because it was helping me at that point. More broadly, turning your own suffering into a source of comfort for other people is a, a wonderful thing to do. I would, yeah, really encourage it, but um, it's not it's not for everyone. And there's putting yourself out into the public realm is a really vulnerable thing to do. The internet is has got some beastly corners, and I think considering the timing, like I don't know, there's a lot of people who live inside out now and process absolutely everything on social media and in blogs and I don't think that's necessary to do I don't think people should feel compelled to do it is there anything um Joe that you would you would encourage parents as a sort of surefire that works that's a good thing to do um if you can see that your son or daughter is really battling well I think a visit to the GP is never going to hurt. And if it's just a reassuring kind of doesn't sound like clinical depression to me kind of a chat. There are also, I'm sure you probably better placed than me to, to um, signpost these, but there are a vast number of really useful websites and mental health, teen mental health charities. And there'll be good blogs and forums and that would help you evaluate your kids behavior and at least get a sense of of whether it's nudging into something more serious i think that idea of seeking professional help is always a good piece of advice if you're unsure as you said i I like the word reassurance there that even if you're going there to to just be reassured that it is or is you know that it isn't and it might come away actually no they're just being low and there's puberty and there's you know just low emotions but that that sense of actually going to expertise is is never a bad thing, is is it? And um, often parents, uh, you know, are quite reluctant to do that sometimes. Or I think it can be a little bit dangerous to go down the I'm going to diagnose you route um, because it's a, it's a really difficult subject. I also think that you can't underestimate the power of of talking actually and. There's nothing particularly kind of deep and magical about that, but just being available for your child or teenager when when they're ready to talk, which might be really inconvenient. I mean, I'm realising that our sleep schedules as a family are kind of going in opposite directions. I want to go to bed earlier and earlier, and it's often around 10 that they just get really chatty. Or car journeys, again, they're really, like, don't on any music just let let, I don't know be available be around in their in their in their presence until there's a time when they're ready and want to offload and um and then just something I'm constantly trying to remind myself is just hold off on on the quick judgments and the quick advice and the solutions because that shuts them down really fast I think a lot of the time it's just verbalising and externalising and um, chewing things over with someone who accepts you that can show you the way forward and you don't need to say anything helpful at all. Just have an arm around them and make them a cup of hot chocolate or something and then they'll feel better after that. 
I think that just acknowledging the feelings as well and, you know, dignifying that process and not sort of going, oh, no, you're fine, you know, which is a temptation, isn't it, as a parent to sort of, we don't want to hear negative emotions or feelings from our children. Actually. And we don't want to share those feelings. That's the cost of empathy is you kind of, um, you come close enough to feel the discomfort of it too. And it's costly, but I think we need to be ready to sit in the puddle with them for a little bit. I like that idea of not always trying to fix their problems, but, you know, um, just journeying with them, you know, being beside them, I think is a really important posture. Yeah, I mean, a good, good like, little phrase to go to is, that sounds really hard. Like, that's that's as much as you need to say. Like, that sounds awful. I'm so sorry. But it's so hard to just say there, stay there at that point and not then say the next thing how about you talk to uh <laughs> shall i come in and have a word with the teacher <laughs> great joe is, joe is there anything else you just would want to say on the topic to, to parents i mean i guess one of the the messages you know it, it does pass as well doesn't it and there is hope i think that's really important for people to know that um there is a way through isn't there there is, yeah. The sun comes out again. I find the metaphor of, of waves really helpful because often if you just sit in um, an uncomfortable or difficult or painful emotion or period of time, you just have to hold your nerve because it does recede and it can feel like it's going to drown you or crash over you. But just just wait, wait for it. And the, the intensity never, it's never at full intensity forever it it's just the not the nature of things so it's like yeah it's a wave and and it will it will pull away and the tide will go back out and our teenagers need to learn that too don't they that there are um times of the year when life's hard and then it was better in fact i was talking to my daughter the other day she had quite a tough time this time last year and she's now absolutely thriving where she is and i said isn't it interesting the difference a year can make and she was like yeah, that really is incredible. Well, you know, the, the journey I've had from there to here. and Yeah, those stories are so good, aren't they? Those stories that show them that they are resilient and that they can overcome difficulty, that that's who they are. They're a strong person who had that hard time. I say to my kids quite a lot that a story isn't a story without conflict and challenge. The essence of a good story is someone who who faces something difficult and and finds a way through against the odds. <laughs> That's a good story. And we're we're writing our life stories and um and we want to write a good one. Yeah. I've now got an image of you sitting in a puddle and then there are waves coming. <laughs> Which is an interesting image, but I'm not sure. Well, I think that's been so helpful, Joe. Thank you so much for your honesty and, and for being able to talk about a really complex thing in so articulate uh, a fashion. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icaniam.com. Be your soul.